0: The truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, understanding, knowledge, insight, as we look into your word that reveals you. Jesus, ultimately, you are the word become flesh, and so we pray that as we study this section of scripture that we would be reminded of who you are and what you do and how you work in our lives, God. Work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Transform us by the renewing of our minds that we would be able to show forth your glory in what we recognize as a dark world. And yet, Jesus, you are seated upon a throne in heaven and there in your presence are angelic beings who cry, holy, holy, holy. And just a few minutes ago, as we were singing, we were joining in the chorus of angels saying, holy, holy, holy. And they, they pray when they declare, holy, holy, holy. They, de- they pray, the whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, we want that to be true. So glorify yourself in us. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed, saying, Amen. You can be seated. It has been several weeks since we were in the book of Romans, and we need to be careful that we not forget the victorious words that Paul ended the last section with in Romans chapter 8 as we step into this, the ninth chapter. Look just a couple verses back, Romans chapter 8, verse 38, There Paul declares, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great words. So good to know, to be reminded, that nothing can separate us from God the love of God. To know that we are secure in that love because of who He is. Now the clear problem is that those words of assurance and victory, they leave a wide open door for the inevitable question. They leave a wide open door for the objection. If you've been studying with us through the book of Romans, you know that this entire book is filled with Paul making declarations of truth and then answering the objection that he knows would come. Because, you see, Paul was a lawyer. He, his background was a, a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, who was quite literally a Jewish lawyer. And so he knows what objection will come. And so after declaring there in verses 38 and 39 of Romans chapter 8 that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, he knows the objection will be from those who come from a Jewish background, descendants of Abraham, he knows their objection will be, then what about God's chosen people, Israel? If nothing can separate us from the love of God, then how is it that those who were God's chosen people upon whom he declares through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love, how is it that that group of people is not abiding under his love and walking in the redemption that would come from them? Just how can we be so sure and secure if God's covenanted people, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Have failed to lay hold of salvation. Now, of course, that's not the case for all the children of Abraham the descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel. There are some, in fact, the author of this book, the Apostle Paul, he came from Jewish heritage. So did Jesus' 12 disciples, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Thomas, you go down the list. So did most of the early church in the, the first years of the church. They all came from Jewish background, Jewish heritage. Many priests began to believe in Jesus as Messiah. Many Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and just common people believed in him. Yet the, the bulk of the Jewish people, the majority of the nation of Israel, has yet to put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. So when Paul says that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, if God loved them with an everlasting love, how is it that they are not under that love redeemed in Jesus Christ? If anyone were certain of their position with God, one would expect that it would be the children of promise, and yet previously in this very book, Paul in Romans chapter 2 He, as a child of Israel himself, he essentially undermined that expectation by identifying this reality. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He says there, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter of the law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul there in Romans chapter 2 in some ways undermines that expectation, that anticipation that the Jewish people would have that just because they were descendants of Abraham would default to their salvation. So weakened is the expectation by Paul's words in Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 that he anticipates the objection in the very next verse, Romans chapter 3 verse 1. He knows that the answer back From a person with Jewish heritage, a descendant of Abraham, they're going to say, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit is circumcision? What is the advantage of being Jewish then? Well, when we come to Romans chapter 9, in some ways we're picking up where Romans chapter 3 left off. Paul in Romans chapters 2 and 3, he's speaking much about the subject of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Now in chapters 9 through 11, he returns to that subject again. Now, many have questioned why Paul does so. Why does he come back to this issue of Israel in Romans chapters 9 through 11? You see, if you were to remove Romans 9 through 11 from the book of Romans, Romans could stand quite well without it. So why put it in there? Why even have it in this passage of Scripture? Now, I suggest to you, as I did when we began the book of Romans about six months ago, that this letter written by the Apostle Paul at the end of his third missionary journey in about the mid-50s AD from the city of Corinth, this letter was written to a group of new believers in the city of Rome, the church in Rome, and it was written as a discipleship primer. It was written as a a book to carry them from their first faith, being new believers in Christ, to being those who are walking, fully functioning as followers of Christ. So it's a discipleship program, if you will. And the first eight chapters, which we've gone through over the last six months, the first eight chapters of Romans, they really are what we are to believe as Christians. They are the doctrinal core of the book of Romans. In fact, they may just be the doctrinal core of the whole of the New Testament. There's more doctrine, that is, what we should believe and teach in Romans chapters 1 through 8 than maybe anywhere else in the Scriptures. And then when we get to Romans chapters 12 through about the middle of 15, that's the practical section of Romans. That's where many exhortations are given to us about how we are to live. So if you take Romans chapters 1 through 8 and Romans chapters 12 through 15, you have the core of what the Christian should believe and how the Christian should live. And sandwiched in the middle of that is chapters 9 through 11 dealing with the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And there's some people who say, why, why did Paul even put it in here? Why include them? Well, from the earliest days of the Christian movement, there was a division within the body of Christ. A division that was very much a, a racial, a cultural, and ethnic divide. You see, when Jesus came, he came first to and through the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And so most of Jesus' early followers were Were Jewish. There were a few people there scattered among his early disciples while Jesus was here upon the earth who were God-fearing Gentiles who were interested in the things of God. The Gospel of John tells us that a group of Gentiles came to seek for Jesus as he came into Jerusalem after his triumphal entry. We know that there was a centurion that came to Jesus looking for the healing of one of his, his servants. We know that there was a Syrophoenician Gentile woman who came to Jesus seeking for healing for her daughter. So there are Gentiles Intermixed in there, but for the most part, Jesus' first followers were all Jewish. And yet, Jesus gave a commission to his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. He said to them just before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1 You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, predominantly Jewish, in Judea, predominantly Jewish, in Samaria, not Jewish. So the outermost parts of the earth, not Jewish. God's heart has always been for all people. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that it was not intended for one group of people at one specific time in one area of the world. It's for all people, the grace of Christ. It's always been God's aim. And so there was a divide in the early church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It happened like this. It was there in Acts chapter 10 that God told Peter to go to the home of a a Gentile Roman centurion, a leader of the Roman military by the name of Cornelius. And Peter, when he goes into the house of Cornelius, he even says to the people that are gathered there, a whole group of Gentiles, like us. How many Gentiles here today? Most of us. Gentile just means non-Jew. Probably all of us and just a few scattered people with Jewish heritage. Peter goes into the home of a Gentile, and as he does, he wants to let them know, this is not normal. Oi, I shouldn't be here, he tells them. And I wouldn't be here had it not been for a vision that God just gave me, and in the vision three times he says, call nothing common or unclean that which I've set apart. And so Peter goes in, he begins to preach the gospel among a gathered group of Gentiles, non-Jews, and in the midst of his preaching, as they believed, the Spirit of God fell upon them. It was manifested that they had the same Spirit of God that was given to the Jewish converts to Jesus in Acts chapter two in the day of Pentecost. And as this happens, Peter turns to his Jewish friends. He says, what should we do? (laughs) That's not supposed to happen. You think we should baptize them? Yeah, I guess so. And so they baptize a group of Gentiles who now put their faith in Jesus. They go back to Jerusalem and they have a problem. The Christian leaders of a Jewish background there in Jerusalem say, Peter, what are you doing? You, you, You ate a meal with Gentiles, you baptized Gentiles. He says, Listen, the Spirit of God fell upon them, the same Spirit that fell upon us at Pentecost. What was I supposed to do? God affirmed that they were believers. And that he is not a, he's not one who sits as a distinguisher of persons. He shows no respect for peoples. The same spirit poured out on Gentiles. And so they, they dealt with this issue in, in Acts chapter 11. And then a few years later, the apostle Paul, formerly a Jewish Pharisee, he with another Jewish Christian, go out on a missionary journey to Asia Minor. They preached the gospel. They first go to Jewish synagogues, but every Jewish synagogue they went to, they got kicked out of. And so they began to preach the gospel to Gentiles as Paul the apostle, formerly Saul of Tarsus, was called to be an ambassador to non-Jews, to Gentiles. They preached the gospel and many Jews are saved and churches are started in Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, the region of Galatia. Paul goes back to his home church with Barnabas and they receive word from Jerusalem, you caused a problem, you did something you shouldn't have done. You preach the gospel and you planted churches among Gentiles. And so they go down to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. There's what's called the Jerusalem Council. The whole meeting was to discuss this issue of Jewish and Gentile Christians. They recognize that God is not a respecter of persons. But throughout the book of Acts and throughout Paul's three missionary journeys, every battle that he had was primarily over the issue of Gentile and Jewish Christians. There was a cultural and ethnic diversity within the church, but it caused a division in the early church, and they're constantly trying to address it. Why? Because God's aim is that there be one church, one body. That God has torn down the middle wall of partition, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's torn down that middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. There is in Christ no Jew, no Gentile. We're made one in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, you have the climax of this. He says there's one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over us all. So God's aim is that there would be one body. He does not want a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Now I recognize you fast forward more than 20 centuries to the year... 2013, we don't necessarily have a big problem between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but you look at the church, and there are cultural and ethnic divides within the church everywhere you look. And so these words are applicable to us. And Paul, in writing Romans chapters 9 through 11 in this discipleship manual, is emphasizing the point that there needs to be one body in Christ. Christ. We should not miss the fact that the one who wrote this was an ultra-Orthodox Jewish Pharisee who had been converted to Christ. If anyone should exalt the Jewishness of the faith, it should be this guy. And yet, he doesn't do that. In many ways, he diminishes it To the the point that some within the Jewish community did not like it. In fact, when we go back to the book of Acts after we're done with the book of Romans, in Acts chapter 20 through 24, what's the problem that ultimately lands the Apostle Paul in prison and ultimately gets his head disconnected from his body, which is not a good thing? What is the cause of it? It's the Jewish-Gentile problem. That's the problem. So this is a big deal that he's dealing with here. Look at it with me if you would. Romans chapter nine, verse one. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. Now I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that Paul's not lying to us. <laughs> I tell you the truth in Christ. Notice he says it another way. I am not lying. What is he doing? He is affirming both by a positive and a negative clause that what he's about to say is genuine. It's sincere. I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. What are you so sincere about, Paul? What is so genuine that you're emphasizing your your sincerity here? Verse two, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Every single day I'm filled with sorrow and grief. This sounds like a bad thing, Verse 3, what are you so sorrowful and grieving about? For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. These are heavy words, church. I could wish that I would give up my eternal salvation in the presence of God. Paul, are you speaking in hyperbole here? I mean, that's a big deal. No, because verse one, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I'm being sincere here. This is not hyperbole. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ. For what? Why would anybody think to do that? For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. For those who are of my earthly family. I have such sorrow and grief for them. Why? Because they're not saved. I could wish that I myself would be a curse from Christ so that they would know. Now, these words of Paul, they're heavy words. They're probably only rivaled by one other person that we know of in the Scriptures, Moses. Some of you may remember the story back in Exodus chapter 32. There, the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. You remember? Maybe you've seen Charlton Heston depict it there in the Ten Commandments. Or you saw the animated flick, the, the Prince of Egypt, or maybe you actually read it, I don't know. But you saw it, There, the children of Israel, they come out of Egypt, they come into the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the top of Mount Sinai, he's there for 40 days and 40 nights receiving direct revelation of God's law, and down the mountain, the children of Israel, they come to Aaron, Moses' brother, they say, as for Moses, we don't know what happened to him, he's been gone for a while, they're getting a little antsy, you gotta do something. So we, we need to worship a God, so would you make us a God that we can worship? And he says, okay, yeah, give me your gold. They bring him their gold. He fashions this golden calf, and the people start to bow down and worship this golden calf. And God says to Moses, you better get down the mountain. Something bad's going down there. So he comes down the mountain. He sees this. He casts down the, the stone tablets of the law of God. They're broken there. He says to Aaron, what did, what's going on? He says, Moses, you won't believe it. They gave me their gold. I put it in fire. Poof, out comes this golden calf. Seriously. Moses probably, you take me for an idiot? Like, come on. You really expect me to believe that? You're insulting my intelligence. It didn't happen that way. And so God calls Moses back up on the mountaintop. The children of Israel have broken God's law that they said 40 days previously, everything that he says we will do and be obedient three times. God says, therefore, I have the right to judge them. I'm going to judge them. Says, Moses, we'll wipe them out. We'll start over with you. They won't be called, the children of Israel we will call them the children of Moses. Right on. I like that. But Moses doesn't, he doesn't capitulate to that. Exodus 32, 32, he cries out on behalf of the sinful people Israel. He intercedes on their behalf and he says, God, blot me out of your book, but don't, don't judge them. Don't judge them in their ignorance. Blot me out of your book Paul with the same heart here in Romans chapter 9 he says I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren now although that was Paul's sincere heart in this issue it is neither necessary or possible it's neither necessary nor possible that Paul would be accursed from Christ for the people, the children of Israel. Why? Because there was one man who already took the curse of sin upon himself for all humanity. Who is that? Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, it was not necessary for Paul to stand in that place as a substitutionary death, if you will, for the people, the nation of Israel. Why? Because Jesus already did it. The unfortunate fact was that the Jewish people had rejected Christ. They rejected Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul, he says that, I I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, My countrymen according to the flesh. Well, who are those people? Just who is it that Paul is speaking of? He tells us in verses 4 and 5. He he unpacks that for us. He says, those who are Israelites, verse 4. Those who are Israelites. Paul mentions that his countrymen are Israelites. What exactly does that mean? Well, his countrymen were direct descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac. And Jacob, whom God changed his name to Israel, his descendants, his people, descended from the first follower of God by faith, Abraham. The first one to follow God into promise, just based on the word of God, was Abraham. And Paul unpacks it. What does it mean to be an Israelite? He goes on in verse 4. He says, to whom pertain the adoption? The adoption. Now, Paul is not speaking here about the spiritual adoption that you and I have experienced in Christ that only comes through Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He is speaking here about a national adoption that God had chosen the descendants of Abraham to be his children. He says that in Exodus four twenty-two, 22, and Deuteronomy 14, and many other places. He chose them to be his children. By his own declaration of adoption upon them. So he says they are Israelites. They are God's people. He says not only that, they have the glory. They have the glory. You see, to Israel was granted the privilege of possessing the manifested glory of God. No other nation had this privilege. The descendants of Abraham were given the manifested glory of God. How? Well, in Exodus, it says that they were led by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and then later on in the book of Exodus, they were instructed to build a tabernacle, that's a tent, where they could interact with and meet with God, and there in the the holy of holies in that tabernacle, the manifested glory of God's presence, his Shekinah glory, would be there among the people of Israel. No other nation had that. Only the descendants of Abraham. So they're Israelites who were adopted as the children of God. They had the manifested glory of God. Not only that, Paul says they had the covenants, they had entered into a covenantal relationship with the creator of all things, the Almighty God. Now, in our culture here in the 21st century, we only have a framework of one covenant, the covenant of marriage, where two people enter into a covenant under vows before witnesses, and that relationship is bound under covenant. The the children of Israel, they were bound in relationship to Almighty God through a covenant, many covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, several other ones that maybe you've not heard of before. Ultimately, it would be through them that God would bring the new covenant. Jesus established it there in John chapter 13 on the night that he was betrayed. And so they were Israelites, descendants of the first follower of God by faith. They were adopted as the children of God. They had the manifested glory of God in their presence. They had the covenants with God. They had, Paul says, the law. They were given the law. They had direct revelation from God about God's nature and his will. They knew more than any other people on the face of the planet what it was that God wanted and what God was like through the law. And as a result of having the law, Paul says that they had the service of God. You see, contained in the law that they received in the book of Exodus, restated in the book of Deuteronomy, contained in the law were the rites and the ordinances of religious service and sacrifice, the Levitical rites that we read in the book of Leviticus. And to Israel above all nations was given the opportunity and the responsibility to serve God. No other nation had this. You see, it was God's intent, it was God's purpose that every firstborn son from the nation of Israel, from every tribe, would be a priest of God. That they would be a priest unto God and unto the peoples of this world. All the firstborn children, Were to be set apart, consecrated as priests, and yet after the golden calf incident of Exodus chapter 30 through 34, then after that it was only one tribe that had the awesome opportunity to be the priests, the the tribe of Levi. But it was God's intent, it was his plan that every firstborn of every household would be consecrated as a priest for the service of God. No other nation had that awesome opportunity. Not only that, Paul says that they had the promises. The Old Testament under the Old Covenant is filled with great and precious promises for God's people of promise. They were called His people of promise. They were given great promises now, now, one of the great promises that they were given was to Abraham, their father. God said, I am going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky, than the sand of the sea. Now, that promise of descendants is primarily fulfilled spiritually through Abraham because the descendants by blood from Abraham, they are not more in number than the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea, but the descendants who are children of Abraham by faith, which Paul speaks of in in Romans chapter four, those descendants are innumerable. Not only were they given this great promise of descendants, but they were also given not just the people, but a possession. The promised land was given as an inheritance to the people. And so Paul says that they were Israelites, they had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the service of God, the promises. He says, lastly, they had the fathers, the fathers. You say, well, what is that all about? Well, they had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel, Joseph, his tw- the 12 patriarchs, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, you go down the list. Men and even women of God who followed God by faith, not just because they were descendants of Abraham, but they followed God by faith. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us a listing of some of them. That was their lineage. They look back to something to be proud of, something to boast in. They were descendants of Abraham, and let me tell you, they did boast in that fact. But the greatest advantage, the greatest blessing that was accounted and afforded to them, the nation of Israel, is given there at the end of verse 5 of Romans chapter 9. He says that according to the flesh, through them came the Christ. The greatest blessing afforded to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, was that they would be the conduit through which the blessing to all humanity would come, the Messiah, Jesus. One of the awesome realities of this section of Scripture, Romans chapters 9 through 11, is that although Israel was privileged with all these great things, The majority of the nation, the majority of those people who descended from Abraham who were called by the name Israel did not receive the promised redemption that was brought into the world through them. They're the conduit through which the promise, Jesus, came, and they did not partake of the promise. Turn, if you will, back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, to understand or to comprehend just what this whole Line is the children of Abraham. We have to look at the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, his name later on would be changed to Abraham. The Lord had said at some point in the past, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God says, I want you to leave everything that is comfortable, everything that you know, and I want you to come and follow me. I'm not telling you exactly where you're going to go. You're going to have to follow me by faith, and I'm going to lead you there. I want you to come and follow me, leaving everything behind. Why should I do that? Verse 2, I, God says, will make you a great man nation now when god said this to abram he was 75 years old his wife was 65 her name was sarah they had no children she had been barren their entire marriage now what is necessary what is needful to become a great people you gotta at least have one you got to it's essential and so god says i know you have no children you come follow me i'm gonna make you a great nation Abram the name meant father of many what an ironic slap in the face father of many you got no kids so God says you come follow me and I'm going to fulfill what your name means later on God changed his name from Abram to Abraham which means father of many nations and that was before he had any kids It's like God, oh, what are you doing here I'm going to bless you I'm going to make your name great, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, make you a great nation, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 2. You, Abraham, you follow me by faith. This is what I'm going to do. You shall be a blessing. You will not be able to manufacture a blessing. I will work in you a blessing. What is the blessing of Genesis chapter 12, verse 2? I suggest to you the only way to interpret this is that through him would come the Messiah who would be a blessing to all people. Jesus is the ultimate blessing that comes through Abraham. You shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How are all the families of the earth gonna be blessed through Abraham? Because through Abraham would come the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. And so when we read in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you, we need to recognize that that is ultimately speaking about the Messiah. Whatever other things we might interpret that to be, it is ultimately speaking about the Messiah. What do I mean? If you bless the Messiah, Jesus, you will be blessed. If you curse the Messiah, if you curse him, you will be eternally cursed. It's vital to understand that the promised blessing here is Jesus. And yet, why did Israel, that had been afforded all these great things from God, descendants of Abraham, receive the adoption, had the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of God, the fathers, how is it that that group of people largely did not receive the redemption that is made available to the world through them why is that because they stumbled they stumbled what did they stumble at they stumbled number one at the fact that they were not saved merely by their lineage or their good works They stumbled that they were not saved by their lineage through Abraham or their good works. Secondly, they stumbled that the redemption that would come through them would also be available to Gentiles, non-Jews. That bothered them, why? Because we in our sin nature, we love exclusivity. We love to be the only ones. How many of you have brothers and sisters? How many of you at some point in your upbringing asked your parents, I'm your favorite, right? (laughs) Come on, be honest. I did several times. And every time they said yes. (laughs) We love exclusivity, we want to be the favorite, we want to be the one. Quite frankly, and this is not, I'm not saying this to bag on the Jewish people. It's just the reality of what's in the scriptures. Recognize it. They were mad that God would save Gentiles. How many Gentiles in the room today? Most of us. I'm pretty happy God saves Gentiles. They stumbled at this. Read the book of Acts. It's clear. But more than anything, the jewish people stumbled at the redeemer himself look at romans chapter 9 verse 32 romans 931 actually we should look at the verse before it romans 931 but israel descendants of abraham pursuing the law of righteousness they're trying to make themselves righteous by the law Pursuing the law of righteousness, they have not attained the law of righteousness. They've not been able to make themselves righteous. And they're stumbling at that. They're bothered by that. Verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by what? What's it say? They sought it by their works. They didn't seek it by faith. But as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. What's the stumbling stone? Verse 33. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him, the stumbling stone, whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. This is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief of the corner. Jesus. They stumbled that Gentiles would be saved. They stumbled that their works would not make them righteous, and they stumbled at the Redeemer, Jesus. They just did not like him. That's why they said, crucify him. He did not fit their expectation of what the Messiah should be. Paul the Apostle, who wrote this letter, He had the same testimony. He did not like Jesus until he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and went, oh, snap. I screwed up. Then he recognized, yeah, you're the Lord. You're the Lord. Now, we, sitting here in the United States of America in the 21st century, We have been afforded great and awesome blessings as a people, not the same blessings that are afforded the nation of Israel as listed here in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, but we have awesome blessing. We have access to the scriptures. We have freedom to worship. We have an abundant opportunity to learn of our faith and to declare it to others. God has granted us with these great advantages. May we never take it for granted what God has given to us. You see, there is a way in which we that have received grace for salvation become so religiously narrow minded that we forget that God still saves sinners. He still saves people out in the world who are lost in their sins. And such were some of us. We, after we've been in church for a period of time, we start to think that it's we're something really special. God really likes us. And that's why He saved us, because we're really good, and all those other people are bad. But we're good and we forget that no, we were once bad, dead in trespasses and sins, and yet God by his grace saved us, and he still saves sinners by grace. You see, we can be so like Israel and our stubborn obstinance and our failure to recognize that we were just saved by grace. God in Deuteronomy chapter seven tells the nation of Israel, don't think that you were something special. Don't think that you are a nation greater than other nations because you were the least. I chose you because of my gracious love and because I wanted to accomplish my purpose in you and through you. Romans chapters nine through 11, It is a good reminder that God saves sinners by his power, through his promise, and according to his foreknowledge. If you're taking notes, you may want to write those three things down because Paul illustrates them in the remaining verses we'll look at today. God saves sinners by his power, through his promise, according to his foreknowledge. Romans chapter 9 builds upon the sovereignty of God that we have already seen in Romans chapter 8, not to the negation of man's responsibility because man's responsibility is woven in in chapters 9 through 11, but we see here in this passage that God sovereignly saves by his power through his promise according to his foreknowledge. How do we know that? Look at the illustration in verse 6. Romans 9 verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. They they had all these privileges. They had been given the word of God. It's not that that was not effectual in the lives of the Jewish people. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. What is Paul saying? He's making a play on words here. He says, those who are descendants of Abraham, called by the title, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, not all those who are called Israel are actually Israel. What's that mean? Well, the word Israel, the name means governed of God. So not all of those who have the title Israel are actually governed by God. Practically, we understand this. We recognize that salvation by grace through faith is not by lineage, nor is it by the working of our own strength. Sadly, though, many people among the nation of Israel felt secure in their position with God and their possession of salvation by the mere fact that they were descendants of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. We're okay. And then God sends a prophet, John the Baptist, to come on the scene just before Jesus comes on the scene. And John the Baptist says to a big Jewish crowd of people, he says, bring forth fruits of bearing, or bear fruits of repentance. He says to them, you guys need to repent. And they're they're saying in their hearts, wait a minute, what are you talking about we need to repent? We're the children of Israel. We're descendants of Abraham. Matthew chapter three, verse nine. John the Baptist says, do not think to say, we have Abraham as our father. Why? For God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Don't just think that you're saved because of who your daddy was. It's not enough. Practically, we understand that too because many in this room were born in a Christian family. But just because you were born and raised in a Christian family, went to church since you were a wee little lad, does not mean you're saved. You can have the title of Christian over your life and not actually be a Christ follower. American Christianity bears this out bar none. Why? Because in the last two decades, we have seen the spiritual indicators go down that most, that there's a majority of people beginning to no longer self-identify as Christians. Why is that? That's because they were never Christians in the first place. And now it's just culturally okay for them to say it. It was always the case, but now they're saying it. Not all those who sit in church are Christians. Not all those who wear Christian t-shirts or cross symbols or have a fish on their car or on their card, how many of you know that to be the case, are actually Christians. I thought this was a Christian automotive center. You got a fish. Yeah. Bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And so Paul says, not all those who are Israel are Israel. How so? Nor, verse seven, are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. Just because they have Abraham as their father, they're not children. But in Isaac, one of Abraham's children, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Who's the seed? Jesus Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and look at the prophecy about the coming Messiah. The seed that shall be called is Jesus, and he would be called through Isaac, verse 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall bear a son. Now, a little history, because when I'm talking about Abraham, I'm not talking about Abraham Lincoln. Back in the book of Genesis, 4,000 years ago, God called Abraham to follow him. Genesis chapter 12, when he was 75 years old, he says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. He's got no kids. His wife is 65. She's barren. God says, you're gonna have a child. He says, okay, I'm gonna follow you. They follow the Lord. 10 years later, no kids. Sarah comes to him and says, Abe, listen, this ain't working. I'm 10 years older. I'm 75, you're 85. We ain't having any more kids. I know God told you this, but I'm starting to think maybe it ain't working. Something not happening. So she says, hey, Abe, you take Hagar, my handmaid, one of her handmaids there with her, you take her, you go in unto her, the child she has, I'll be our kid. So he does. They have a son, Ishmael. Some time passes, 13 years. God comes to Abraham, reaffirms his covenant. He says, listen, Abraham, you're gonna have a child. He says, I have a child. His name's Ishmael. God says, no, that's not gonna work. That's the product of your ingenuity, your own power. I gave you a promise it's gonna be by my power. Abraham says, would to you that that Ishmael would live before you. And God says, no, Ishmael is not gonna be the one through which the seed, the Messiah, will come. He will be blessed. He will become a great nation, but he's not the one. So God comes a few years later. Abraham's now 99 years old. His wife is 89. He's got no kids. God says, you're gonna have a kid this time next year by Sarah. Sarah hears this and she laughs. She goes, that's not possible. Sure enough, a year later, she gives birth to a kid. What do they name him? Laughter. Isaac means laughter. God made good on his promise. Not because Abraham was anything special, because he was not. Abraham was a fallen guy just like any of us. He's a failure. He's a bonehead. Early on in his following the Lord, he goes down into Egypt, he says to his wife, he says, listen, we're going into Egypt, they're gonna see how pretty you are, they're gonna wanna kill me for you, so tell them you're my sister. Now, maybe that was a compliment, because he's telling his 65-year-old wife, listen, you're hot, they're gonna want you. (laughs) But ladies, if your husband said, you know, just lie, but you're not really my wife, just tell them my sister. What? So stupid was he; he didn't get it. He did the same thing years later when he went into another place. He says, "What? Listen, they'll kill me." She's going, "Yeah, I've heard it before." <laughs> Whatever, Abe. <laughs> He's a bonehead. God's grace—it's all about God's grace. It's according to God's power and God's promise, and not our own ingenuity. Well, Paul continues, Romans chapter nine, verse ten, and not only this. But when Rebekah, also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. So now, Abraham's son of the promise Isaac is a full grown man, he takes a wife by the name of Rebekah in Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 25, she is barren, they have no kids, they cry out to God and God opens her womb and she conceives. But she doesn't conceive just one child, she has twins and she's having a really rough pregnancy. Any ladies relate to this? She's having a rough pregnancy and she calls out to God and says, what's going on? This is bad news. And he goes, hey, you remember that curse, childbearing, painful? No, he didn't say that. But (laughs) God says, you have two nations in your womb. You're going to have twins. These two sons, they're going to become great nations. You have two nations in your womb. Notice what Paul quotes here in verse 11. For the children in her womb, not yet being born, nor having done good or evil, that the purpose of God, remember God called them for his purposes, these children in her womb had done nothing good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand not by works of him who calls, It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. There in Genesis chapter 25, God says to this woman who's pregnant with twins, he says, listen, you have two nations in your womb, and the older one is going to serve the younger one, which is outside of Jewish culture and heritage. So she gives birth to two sons. The first one comes out, and he's all red, and he's hairy. And so they named him Harry. That's what Esau means, hairy. And as he was being born, his brother is holding on to his heel, and so they named him Heel Catcher, Jacob. Naming kids was just like, hey, pfft, look at him. Oh, yeah, Harry. Let's call him Harry back then. <laughs> we got things planned for months, you know. They just go, yeah, I'd say Harry. So Jacob and Esau, the older Esau would become a great nation, the nation of Edom. The younger, Jacob, would become a great nation, the nation of Israel. Both of them would become great nations. But the nation of Edom would serve the nation of Israel. Why? Because Israel was so great and needs to be served? No, but it was through them would come the Messiah. God chose before they were born, according to his purpose and plan, that through them would come the Messiah. 1400 years later it practically reveals itself when God says this through the prophet Malachi the last book of the Old Testament he says Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated verse 13 Romans chapter 10 or chapter 9 Paul is quoting it Jacob have I loved Esau I have hated now there's a lot of Christians who have a really hard time with this whole thing Jacob I've loved Esau I've hated God hates? What's up with that? Listen, I have a harder time with Jacob have I loved. Because Jacob was a rascal. He's a bad dude. It took a long time for God to bring Jacob into the place where he was not a surplanting heel catcher. And ultimately, when the Lord mastered him, Genesis chapter 32, God had to actually physically come down and wrestle with the guy. Jesus. Genesis chapter 32, he wrestles with Jacob all night long. He puts a massively cool UFC move on him, puts his hip out of place. Jacob's lying on the dust, holding on to Jesus before Jesus is leaving, and he goes, let go of me. I'm not letting you go till you bless me. What's your name? Jacob. No longer. Your name is Israel. You've been mastered by God, governed by God. For the rest of his life, every time he was stubborn, God called him Jacob. Every time he did what God wanted him to, he called him Israel. Jacob have I loved. God set his plan and purpose upon Jacob, not because of anything Jacob had done. It was before he was even born. God had a purpose and a plan. He set upon him. And in contrast to what God did in and through Edom, Esau, it looks like God hated Esau in respect to Jacob. But This word hated, if you do a real study on it, you find it it really means loved less. In contrast, between the two, it looks like God honored and loved Jacob over Esau, and he did because he had a purpose and plan through that individual. And so it was according to God's foreknowledge. The ultimate point of this passage and these illustrations that Paul employs is that God, in his sovereignty, he brings salvation by his Promise through his power according to his foreknowledge. Not according to anything that we have done. The issue is will we respond? Will we respond to his grace? And the nation of Israel, the very conduit through which God would bring his promise by his power according to his foreknowledge, that very nation has to this point, 2,000 years later, still rejected. The redemption that is only found in Christ. The application is, having seen these things, we, will we respond or reject the grace that is only in Christ? I would beg you, as Paul would, with every group that he would gather with, whether it were Jew or Gentile, that they would not reject but they would respond with open arms to the grace of the glory of Christ. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for this good word. It's a tough passage, but I pray that you would help us to comprehend it, to understand it, and to be able to walk in the truth of your grace. To be able to share that with those that we know in our families, our neighborhoods, our coworkers, wherever we would come in contact with people who have yet to respond to your grace. God, give us boldness to share it with them and to not be fearful to do so. Lord, help us not to be hoarders who think that this grace is only ours, but to recognize that just as you called the nation of Israel to be a nation of priests, you have made us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, to declare your praises in this world. So use us as your priests, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name.